0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast, episode 71. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. So you know I do this podcast as a labor of love, but that doesn't mean I don't have selfish motives. And today's guest is a perfect example of how selfish I can be in arranging and conducting these interviews. My guest is John Bruna. When he was 10 years old, he was already stealing from liquor stores, He was born into an environment of poverty, violence, and substance abuse, and he began to turn his life around at the age of 22. So fast forwarding, he's currently a co-founder of the Mindful Life Program and the Way of Compassion Foundation. Along the way, John served as a dishwasher, auto mechanic, school teacher, substance abuse counselor, corporate manager, graduate student, spiritual practitioner. He's lived well. He's also been homeless and lived under a bridge. From 2005 to 2011, John became a practicing Buddhist monk, robes and all, and there's even a photo of him on his website and now on my website with the Dalai Lama. His journey has included great highs and what I would call epic lows, although he doesn't see either that way. And I figure that gamut of experience alone qualifies him as something of an expert on happiness, on what sorts of things, situations, and experiences truly make us happy, which ones make us unhappy, and which ones leave us more or less unchanged. So it's my great pleasure to introduce my friend and my teacher, John Bruna. John Bruna, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Howard. It is really a joy to be here. Hey.
0: So I'm so excited about this call. um, Because I'm hoping that, you know, talking to you will remind me of the things that I say are important to me. But, you know, (laughs) days, weeks, months, years can go by with me hardly even paying lip service to it. So um, just let's begin maybe with a a brief definition. What what is mindfulness to you?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I like that you said, what is it to me? Because uh, there is a wide variety of definitions out there on mindfulness and uh, actually very little agreement. So it's it's quite a fascinating topic, just what is mindfulness? And there's all this research to say mindfulness is good for you for this or for that. And, and a lot of people can't even agree on, on what it means. So so I'll just tell you what it means from my uh, my experience. My experience is uh, to be mindful, number one, is to be here, to be aware, to be present. And so it's one thing to be present and to be in this moment, you know, talking to you right now, but it's also got a quality of uh, not just plain awareness, but some uh, to be here with some wisdom and some clarity, to, to be here in this moment in a real um, accurate way would be a good way to put it, without conjecture or you know pre-judgment or you know how this interview is going to go or you know uh, worrying about what I'm going to do later is one thing. But but in this moment, uh, without projection, without biases, being open to the moment as it as it is, and then there's this other piece of mindfulness that if I'm here. I'm present and I'm discerningly present, clear and in an accurate way uh, to be aware of what are my choices here and, and how can I respond to life as it happens uh, in a really healthy way for me and for others. So it's really empowers you to have a choice about what you're going to say, about what you're going to do and to respond to life with wisdom rather than simply react to things as they happen.
0: Hmm. So let, let me break that down a little bit. So the first part is just about being present in the moment. But you, it's more than that. It's sort of being present with discernment. So is it possible to be present without discernment? Sort of just to Absolutely. So what, what, yeah. what, what might that look or feel like, just so I, I understand when I'm doing it?
1: Okay, so real quickly, I, I can be real present. I can see a car pull up, and I can see someone in that car uh, and they've got a bumper sticker and the bumper sticker is opposite, whatever I believe, right? It's the antithesis, right? (laughs) Uh, Now I'm fully present. I see that bumper sticker and I see this person get out and I've projected, you know, all this a characterization of this person, right? You know, what kind of an idiot are they? What kind of person believes in that stuff? And, you know, and I've built up a whole caricature of a person that I've never even met. And the only thing I know about them is that they're driving a car with that bumper sticker. I don't even know if it's their car. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, I'm fully present, but I'm certainly not living in reality. I don't know anything about this person and, and I've projected all this judgment, uh, and uh, and I'm actually feeling angry, maybe, and nothing's actually happened.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so it sounds like I'm I'm present on a sensory level that I can see what's happening in the world. My eyes aren't closed. I'm not in a reverie. I'm not fantasizing about something, but I'm still um, bringing my own. Stage set, costumes, script, and imposing it on what I'm seeing.
1: Absolutely, and and on a really more subtle level, how I feel today. You know, if I'm a little bit agitated, a little bit tired, not feeling well, uh, it's amazing how my best friend can be really annoying. Uh, whereas if I'm feeling really, you know, good, I'm, you know, I'm feeling whole and healthy and well. That. Even people I I have challenges with, I I don't really get bothered by. So we're bringing our own physical as well as mental and emotional state into the moment. And it's coloring everything we see. And uh, and we always have this tendency to point out that it's out there that's irritating me or annoying me and not understanding the sort of interdependence and... Uh, relational aspect that we have with life.
0: Mm. So the, the the second part is about being able to understand that there are choices and having the capacity to make them. You know, I, I, when I'm behind the person with the bumper sticker and maybe they're like driving annoyingly or they're, you know, they're going too slowly or they're weaving a little bit right i can make a choice to pass that person I, I feel like i'm making choices and i feel like i can see the entire gamut of the of my choice landscape you're saying that if i'm not mindful that maybe i'm not seeing all the choices that that are available to me
1: yeah and and you know we're actually at the third part making choices um you know second part's really some wisdom and and the wisdom would be like you said they're driving annoyingly and and is that even possible? <laughs> uh, I have this uh, very basic, clear theory that there are no annoying people in the world; they don't exist. And uh, and what we want to understand by that is uh, the annoyingness is not in them. I'm feeling annoyed by how they're driving. So you know, more accurately, they might be driving unsafe. They might be driving at a speed different than I would like to go. Uh, But the annoyance is really coming from me wanting them to be different or drive different, and the situation to be different. Um, and that's you know, it's a real important wisdom distinction because with that, I, I have a better ability to make healthier choices. And uh, and I you know, I might choose to slow down and turn on Neil Young, you know, <laughs> uh, right? And and realize in this moment that. I could look at his driving or her driving, whoever it is, or I could really reflect upon, I have a car, I've got music, I'm in no hurry, and look at the scenery out here. I have a whole wider range of choices because I can see more clearly. Um... You know, I just uh, this is a great example because I had a friend of mine who was coming to visit me, and and she was driving across this valley in, in Telluride in the Rocky Mountains. It's one of the most beautiful valleys, in in uh, the Rocky Mountains, incredible vistas and views, and these uh, you know elk, and and she's in a hurry to come see me, and uh, and the person in front of them is going. The speed limit, oh. <laughs> and right, and nobody goes the speed limit on it. It's always about five or six out, you know, miles quicker. And and she noticed her her anger and her frustration and her stress, and um, and she said, you know, uh, she paused for a minute and she realized I'm in a hurry to drive through one of the most beautiful valleys. <laughs> there is here and how often do you get to see that? And she had that moment of mindfulness to, to, to kind of pause and breathe and relax and, and enjoy the drive um, rather than focusing on, you know, I need to be here and, you know, and, and have all that stress arise. So with mindfulness, the wisdom piece is really critical because that opens up the potential for choice, for room to move and for non-reactivity.
0: So that, that, that reminds me of uh, a few years ago, I was working with a, a healthcare practitioner, a, a chiropractor, actually, who was thankfully very uh, attuned to my being and the words I was saying, and I think knew quite a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. And at some point, uh-huh. we were working together, and he pointed out in a very loving and gentle way that I lived my entire life as if I was five minutes late. <laughs> uh, so it didn't, it didn't matter if I'm in Telluride or online at the grocery store or in the bathroom or reading a book or whatever it was. There was always somewhere that I was late to. And it, and, uh-huh. and it wasn't a choice. And it wasn't even something that I was consciously aware of. It was just sort of revving at 5,000 RPM instead of, you know, 1,100. Mm-hmm
1: yeah and you know what you're describing is pretty much the state of the you know most human beings you are not unique in this uh, and and this is sort of the the you're describing what our essential problem is uh one of my teachers he he describes it as uh he calls it o c d d uh we suffer from obsessive compulsive delusional disorder <laughs> and uh <laughs> And and but it's real clear. What happens is the mind. The mind is constantly thinking. The mind is constantly producing thoughts and visual stimulus. This is what the mind does. Anyone who's ever tried to meditate will will quickly recognize. Try to stop thinking for for a minute while you're still awake, and you're going to find it's it's not very possible. You know, and. Uh, and so we have this mind that constantly produces thoughts. It's constantly. And, uh, and that's one thing. It, you can actually meditate and watch thoughts. It's, but our mind then, the obsessive part's one, it's obsessively thinking. The second part is it's compulsive. And it, what it does is it constantly draws our attention away to the thoughts. So as you're talking about five minutes later, right? I get somewhere, and my mind's thinking about where I need to go next. And it's not just thinking it, it's drawing my attention there. And it's, it's really compulsively taking my awareness, my direction of thought to wherever it wants. You know, here's what you should worry about. Here's what you should think about. Hey, was there some popcorn over there I thought I smelled? And, uh, and so it's compulsively drawing our attention away from where we are in this moment. And then the delusional piece is that we rarely see the world as it is. And, and, you know, that, that's the most fascinating part for me. And I, uh, really believe that foundationally, if we can see the world in, in terms of how it actually functions, uh, we don't suffer. It's, you know, our suffering comes from, we want things to be different than they are. And that, uh, we're not really attuned to how things really are, uh, how they exist. You know, for example, uh, we have this kind of idea that if I eat right and exercise, I'm going to live long. You know, if I get, you know, this career and this job, I'm going to have it made. If I meet the right person and I can have this relationship, we're going to be happy. And, you know, if I can just get all these things lined up, I'm going to live long, have a great life and be happy. And, uh, if I maintain my car, it won't break down. Now, that world doesn't exist anywhere, you know. Uh, The real world is, I don't care how much you exercise or work out, you could die tomorrow. Uh, We're prone to disease. We drive by hospitals and we see cancer centers and all that, but when we get cancer, we're shocked. Our car breaks down and we're surprised, even though there's a whole industry built on the idea that cars break down. They're called auto auto repair. You may have seen a shop, Right. (laughs) And, uh, but we don't, you know, we're surprised. We, we live in this fantasy land where, uh, you know, uh, life is in, in truth, very messy. Uh, relationships come and go. Uh, divorces happen. Cancer's here. Leukemia is here. Uh, cars break down and uh, jobs come and go. And we actually have very little control over any of that. You know, we can't, the government closes down, you know, and, what happens is we're we have these unrealistic expectations about the world and the source of my happiness and we actually even though grandma will tell you a happiness inside job we keep looking for happiness in all the wrong places it's kind of like an old bad country song <laughs> so
0: <I'll,
1: laughs> right yeah go ahead, go ahead. Well, so anyway the delusional aspect is just that I live in a world that doesn't exist, and I'm shocked when it shows up in reality. You know, the plane that's not there on time. And, you know, newsflash, that happens a lot. Um, and if I can actually tune into reality, is that plane sometimes you're delayed? I'm not shocked when it happens. I'm more prepared for it. When the car breaks down, rather than having this whole rumination about, wow, that mechanic I just had at service and why this shouldn't happen and all the pain and drama of it not starting. If I actually understand that you know, cars do break down, they don't start sometimes, I can more quickly move to solution. Oh, I'm going to make some other arrangements, call AAA, uh, call someone because I'm going to be late. And I'm not looking out there to blame. I'm, I'm more focused on how to solve the current problem.
0: Mm. In, in other words, we're... Um it's it's hard to make good decisions and in fight or flight mode that we, we, yeah or fight or flight or freeze right we're, we're limited to very very stark options most of which are not suitable for our subtle world
1: yeah the uh, the emotions so if you have any emotion this is just western psychology nothing fancy but when you have an emotion that's triggered you're in a refractory period you can't see clearly it's there's no way it's, you know, once we're in an emotion, whatever the emotion is, whether it's fear, whether it's anger, even happiness, uh, everything is colored through that emotion. And, uh, and so we don't make really healthy choices. And, you know, this is the wisdom of Facebook. I I read a a quick post there that said, never make a decision when you're angry or a promise when you're happy. Right. (laughs) And, uh, And you know it's true. When we're in emotional states, that's not the time to make really healthy choices. So, uh, but even the if we can remove the trigger, if I live in reality, I'm not going to have the strong emotional responses when the car doesn't start or when the plane's not on time, because I can come back to reality, which is number one. I have a car. Most people in the world don't. Most people in the world don't even have water in their own faucet. Most people in the world don't even have electricity. They can't read or write. And, you know, my mind's going to what an incredibly, in, you know, what a terrible day this is because my car won't start. And, uh, and what I'm not looking at in, re- in, ret- in reality is the incredible life I do have, that I have a car and I have resources. And you know what? Tomorrow, this is not going to be that big a deal.
0: I want to come back to this, uh, this idea of happiness, but I want to take a, a little bit of a right turn at, at this point. Uh-huh. And, I, and I have to admit that I was as I was preparing for this interview, I was sort of you know licking my lips at this moment for, for you, know, in anticipation of this moment. Uh, so I guess I wasn't being mindful of whatever I was doing. And, but I, wa- I wanted to ask you, um, you know, so given all this um, wisdom. You must have uh-huh. you must have been a very precociously wise and centered and calm and mindful child, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> so tell, uh, tell us a little bit of your backstory.
1: Uh, that one's killing me. Um, yeah, no, I was actually, um, you know, raising. Uh, uh, I've had a lot of really wonderful opportunities to experience a wide variety of life. Let me put it that way. Uh, you know, mom raising nine kids. Uh, I couldn't even speak when I was younger. I had speech uh, therapy issues and people couldn't understand me. I was really a frightened child at the, you know, towards the bottom of nine and my dad died when I was young. And so mom raising nine of us, uh, you know, um, I we just wound up growing up around a lot of drugs, alcohol, violence, uh, I was actually stealing liquor from a liquor store at 10. And uh, and for me, that that uh, was an escape that, that helped me kind of, you know, deal with all my fears and anxieties. I did uh, learn how to speak and, and get speech therapy when I was uh, six uh, and got better at it. Uh, but insecurity, fears and, you know, uh, poverty and loss and um you know, just created some different skill sets. And so, you know, I grew up around drugs, alcohol, and violence. I, you know, hung out with uh, people who were in gangs. And I uh, did things that were pretty harmful and, uh, and you know, used drugs and alcohol myself and had this journey of most people I knew went to prison. So I grew up in that atmosphere. I got really fortunate when I was uh, uh, You know, I've actually lived under a bridge and and been in a homeless camp and had a daughter when I was 20 and uh, lost her because of of the way I lived my life. And uh, and now, 22, I had a little realization, and that that was the big gift. Uh, As a result of pain and suffering, I had this epiphany, which was that uh, pretty simple. My suffering did not come from my situation, from other people, from places. It came from how I was living my life. And um, and it was just really clear. It was that all, all, this, all the people I've hurt in my life, all the pain I felt in my life um, was coming from the way I lived my life, from the person I had become. And, uh, and if I wanted to live, I needed to change. And so back in 1984, 30 years ago, Uh, I stopped using drugs and alcohol, and I went to 12-step programs, and they taught me how to live life and live life differently in the sense of, um, you know, how to be of service rather than uh, self-obsessed. And with that, some pretty basic gifts, which is my early mindfulness training of what are my motives, what are my intentions, and how can I be of benefit today? Uh, That began a journey, which is now 30 years in length and uh, allowed me to, to learn how to live in modern uh, or just basic culture because I had no idea I was a wreck uh, and it, it taught me how to uh, I actually got my daughter back when she was eight and a half I got to raise her for the rest of her life and uh, and her younger sister and uh, I'm a grandparent today but I went from a guy who lived under a bridge and uh, been a dishwasher and an auto mechanic and uh, to back to school become a counselor and a therapist uh, working with substance abuse and adolescence I actually also became a teacher a school teacher taught a uh, low income minority school in North Long Beach Compton area right there on the border and um uh, and then the other piece uh, is I became a Buddhist monk, and I've lived uh, a little over six years, about six and a half years as a Buddhist monk in the uh, Tibetan tradition. And um, so it's been a journey, right? I'm, I I really think of myself as a recovering knucklehead, essentially. <laughs> um, but all of this, uh, sort of the key for me is that I've had a rare opportunity to live at most of the social and economic levels of the country. I've lived in, under a bridge, and I've been homeless. Uh, I can kick it with the homies if I need to. I've also been the senior account manager of a management healthcare corporation. I have a college degree and a teaching credential, and um, and so I've also been a you know a dishwasher and an auto mechanic. And and what I found is there's this thing that's very universal in us. I don't care how much money you have. Or how little you have. As human beings, we we all suffer from this, as as Alan Wallace would call it, the obsessive compulsive delusional disorder, and this mind that's just busy and distracted, and takes us away from how we can find some real happiness. So, so my journey has been uh, a thirty year journey now to to get as uh, whatever little level of com- of peace or any wisdom I've had, I've, I've gotten from some very wonderful teachers. But it's been a journey.
0: Can, can I ask you about that 1984 moment of realization? Sure. Because I've, I've read, you know, sort of spiritual autobiographies of people like Eckhart Tolle and Byron Katie, both of whom describe these moments where... In the you know I guess Eckert was on the verge of suicide and Byron Katie was in a, in a rehab center, the only place her insurance would pay for, and they just sort of like instantly understood like life and and then it was like there was a period of kind of coming to terms with it and learning how to articulate it and seeing that it wasn't uh, a fluke, but that basically that that moment totally changed everything and freed them from all their suffering. And I'm suspicious of that, like of that story. Yeah, so am I. <laughs>
1: I mean, not to cast dispersions, but it certainly wasn't my experience.
0: So t- what, what, uh, I mean, what was what happened? You know, I guess in the, in the Zen tradition, they say after enlightenment, you know, chop wood, haul water. What happened the day after you had that realization? Did everything change? Did anything change? No, um,
1: what, uh, you know, what happens and, and, you know, they, they might, you know, I'm not, you know, I can't speak to their experience. Maybe they had, sounds like what you're describing is they've had this experience and there was no more suffering. That was not mine. That's, that was my, uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying, you know, what well, theirs is theirs. Mine was mine. Uh, but mine also, uh, is very related to what we would teach in this whole lineage of, you know, uh, you know, I was trained as a Buddhist monk and this whole lineage of a path that stretches back going on you know over twenty five hundred years is that it's a gradual process that um, uh, you know the the moments we have and we have them all the time and you've had them you've had moments in your life where things are just real clear and we can see things and and we understand and then an hour later. <laughs> I'm back doing my old habits and, uh, and people, this happens a lot. People, you know, they'll they'll go to a retreat or they'll read a book or they'll, you know, have these, these spiritual awakenings. And, uh, and a week later, you know, uh, they're trying to either recapture that moment or they're just back in their own habits, unless we're doing something actively to maintain it. So, so for me, I had that moment I had that clarity. I saw it. And, um, and I knew that I needed to, if I wanted to live, I needed to live differently. And I knew there was a path. Now, I didn't know how to do it. And the next day, I actually tried to get drunk again. Because <laughs> so, uh, the pain was so great. And and what happened, though, what was very different is no matter what I, how much I drank, I couldn't, it wouldn't take away the pain. Uh, the the realization was so strong that I couldn't drink it out of my mind. And the pain didn't go away. And it really left me with the idea that that is no longer a path for me. And I needed to learn how to live differently. And so that became an arduous uh, path initially because I didn't know how to live. I didn't know, uh, know, yeah, I mean, I was, I knew how to live at a street level, but how people have a job and a house and they take their kids on a picnic You know, I I didn't know how they did that. And so I had to get a little job delivering auto parts, take a bus and had to, I would be standing next to people wondering, how should I feel right now? Mm -hmm. Like, what would a normal person feel like? And so it it was a journey for me. And, uh, but underneath it, underneath all the struggle was always this sense of knowing, a sense of knowing that I'm moving in the right direction, and this is the path. And if I didn't drink or use today, I'm doing something right. And if I help others, I'm on this path. And that there's, there's a, a clear sort of underneath all the turmoil, fear, and insecurity, there was always this sort of, you know, once that, that moment happened, this more clear, intuitive process that said, you know, it sucks, it hurts, it's scary. Uh, it's the right thing to do. Mm.
0: So, so part of me is, uh, is actually, like, jealous of your rough childhood. <laughs> like, there's a the little story that goes in my head that says, you know, if that had happened to you, and like, then you'd be all sorted out now. Because I, I, I sort of feel like that my a lot of my own flirting with spirituality and with mindfulness is just enough to get my ego to not feel so bad. Like, but when it comes comes right down to it, I really like my ego. And when things are going well and the money's coming in and my relationship is good and it's sunny outside and the West wind is blowing warm, fragrant, like, like, I don't want to change a thing. I don't want to get rid of, you know, ego and consciousness. And at that moment, like nothing bad could ever happen again. (laughs) And and so how do you, you know, how do you help people? Because I'm sure. A lot of people come to you, come to the Mindful Life program, looking for relief from suffering. And as soon as they get a taste of it, how do they stop from sliding right back?
1: Yeah, and that's that's where we're going to go back to this idea about happiness. but. Uh, But I just want to address a a quick thing that you mentioned there is that you don't need to have the outside physical level of pain. You know, like, you know, it's easy to kind of see my story. Right. And and see how rough it was. Uh, But uh, but what we need to understand is someone living in a twelve million dollar house who's had uh, nothing but resources can suffer at the same level and degree that I suffered. Uh, it's not the outer circumstances. And and, uh, and this was, you know, it came rivetingly clear to me early on in my own recovery when I was hearing a woman share in her recovery that her bottom, her pitiful, incomprehensible, demoralizing pain was uh, falling off a cocktail stool at this fancy party. <laughs> I was like, really?
0: <laughs>
1: you know. Uh, You know, it's uh, and but what I realized with the the, the emotional pain and the demoralization she felt was the same as I felt. In my circumstance, and what we start to really realize is it's not the outer circumstances, it's not the the resources and money and all that or, uh, you know, all that coming in. Uh, My first job in in counseling was at a uh, St. Joseph's Medical Center, which is in Burbank California right across from Disney studios and NBC studios and our client base was people in that industry and their, well, their children. And, uh, trust me, I saw the level of suffering that was just as great as any of the kids I worked with that were in gangs. So, so we want to get away from the idea that, you know, this, um, uh, you know, pain that we have is because of a rough life. Physically, you know, we have emotional and mental uh, stress. I mean, you could see like Robin Williams, right, who just had, a you know, an incredible amount of pain. And, you know, outwardly we'd say, you know, this is an incredibly loving, wonderful, talented man. How could that happen? So we really want to kind of understand that. What's going on inside a person uh, is often much different than what we see on the outside circumstances. Uh, so that brings us back to how do we, once we have this this epiphany or once we get some relief, how do we maintain it? And and for me, this was the big challenge. I'd been, you know, uh, helping people for a while and I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd watch people that are, you know, Buddhist or other spiritual traditions. I used to do a lot of interfaith work. And I'd see people that go on those retreats. And and, uh, this one guy, it was great. He was asking a nun. He said, you know, this is all really good stuff. And I I feel it when I'm at the retreat. But, you know, I'm I'm driving home after a 10-day retreat where I'm blissful and wonderful. And I'm not even home yet. And I'm flipping people off. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, so how do we maintain that? And so for me, when we designed this program, we really thought much more about, We don't want to just, uh, you know, because people have information, we want to really encourage a way that people can change their life on a day-to-day basis and maintain it. And the number one starting point is uh, to start having people be mindful of a very important question. Where does my genuine happiness come from and where does my suffering come from? So now when we're looking at mindfulness, and this is the core of mindfulness, the choice, right? If I'm here with wisdom, if I'm living my my life with wisdom, I can be aware of where my real genuine happiness comes from and where my suffering comes from. And, uh, And I can really cultivate healthy tendencies in my life that lead to genuine happiness, make choices that lead there. And I can stop doing the things that don't serve me. And so this is the bigger question. We can, when I went back to the delusional world where if I have that right house, the car, the relationship you talked about, the money coming in, people acknowledgement, whatever that is, um, I created, you know, this this thing and it's working and people, you know, like it. Um, What we're going to find is that none of that stuff will ever give you any lasting happiness. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. There's no way that the house, the car, the job, the relationship will give you any lasting happiness. And um, what it can provide is a stimulus-driven pleasure that's temporary, right? So, you know, the car is really nice when you get the brand-new car and it's got heated seats or something. That's really cool. I like those. One day I'll get one, I hope. But when somebody hits that car, (laughs) now, I'm suffering. Or when the car doesn't break down, I'm suffering. Or, you know, the house when it needs plumbing work or the relationship, anyone who's been married, and I know you are, we have our moments. They're, it's wonderful. It's challenging. It's uh, really great. It's nothing I'd ever change, but it has its ups and downs. Uh, and then if you think about where does all my suffering come from and what do I worry about the most and what creates the most stress in my life, Guess what we're going to find? It's the house, the job, the car, the relationships, the job, you know, and, and my family. And, and those are the things that are supposed to provide my happiness. And so we're, we, we, our confusion is that these things are going to provide me some lasting happiness when, in fact, uh, it's going to be temporary. It's going to have its ups and downs. Your lasting happiness, your genuine happiness, and I want to be real clear about this, it's not a giddy state. When I'm talking about genuine happiness, I'm talking about an inner peace. I'm talking about a sense of well-being and inner flourishing that's underneath. It's kind of like the waves on the ocean are the ups and downs and challenges of life, and this is the depth of the ocean that's untouched. That genuine happiness, well-being, inner peace, that sense that things are going to be okay... It comes from how you live your life. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from what you bring to the world. And it's really a very basic formula that you're gonna see makes absolute sense. When I respond to life and I do things that are in alignment with my own values, my values, not somebody else's, my values, my belief system, when I live a life that's in alignment with my values and is a benefit to the greater good, that's where we cultivate genuine happiness and well-being, essentially, when my life is meaningful and in alignment with my values. If we live that way, we're going to find a lot more inner peace and tranquility. When I live a life of integrity that I feel good about, I can look in the mirror even when everything's falling apart, that our genuine happiness and our well-being comes from how we respond to life. And... Uh, and so with mindfulness, this becomes the focus. Whatever happens, it's not the events that happen. It's how do I respond to them? And, and what's the healthiest way to respond that I'm going to feel good about tomorrow? That's ethical and in alignment with my values. What's the most beneficial thing to do? And the more and more you do that and stop grasping to the idea that I'll be really happy if this happens. 'Cause as you notice, if this happens, you might be really happy for a day or two and then you're not. Or it could happen and you find out it isn't that happy. You know? We could have the dream vacation of a lifetime. And the you know, two months later, be depressed. Those things are not the lasting piece. The lasting piece is how we show up.
0: So so it seems like a large part of it is that these things that we Lean on so heavily in the belief that they'll make us happy, are simply impermanent, and they're going to exactly. f- they're going to fail at some point or another. Yeah, they're they're temporary. They're stimulus-driven pleasure,
1: and uh, and we lean on them as though they're much more than they are. We exaggerate their qualities. Mm.
0: But there's also, I think, an element of um, getting accustomed to something whether 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 it's you know the amount of alcohol we need to make us feel better or the amount of a drug or the amount of praise and adulation that there's a certain um addictive quality where we need more and more and more that the the car that i was over the moon about with the you know the first time i turned on the heated seats you know i was giggling in ecstasy i I can't believe this is in my life and you know now it's the middle of november and it's cold out and i just Push the button, and I don't even think about it.
1: Right. Yeah, you're talking about what they call the hedonic treadmill, and uh, the treadmill, hedonic treadmill means that I get this, and this is really cool. Like you know, our smartphone, and then you know, there's a better smartphone, or you know, the heated seats, and then you know, if I don't have heated seats, now I'm really suffering. And uh, what's the next thing? And this feels good for a while, but it's this treadmill. I mean, could you imagine, I don't know if you have a TV, I don't have a TV, but, um, but, you know, for people that have TV, can you imagine them having to get up and change the channel? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that would be like, oh my God. And, and, uh, you know, back when I was growing up, just having a color TV was a big deal. So as you're talking about, we get accustomed to things, right? And uh, and it's a fascinating piece. When I was traveling with monks uh, from our refugee settlement in India, and we'd come here and, and they'd see people, right? We have over here, we have so much luxury you know we've got these really fancy beds you know thousands of dollars you can spend on a bed and there you could have one side of the bed more comfortable than the other you can have them adjustable we have climate control we got the heated seats uh you know we have a, a phone that gives you the answer to anything at your fingertips and uh then the studies show that we're the number one most anxious country in the world uh, then you look at the levels of stress and how much uh, hospitalizations and injuries are, are directly related to stress. It's more than 50%. It's something like 78%. And you start to see that this stuff that we're relying upon to feel good about uh, is not helping us live a life that's meaningful and, and less stressful or provides that genuine sense of well-being. You know, the monks would look at us and go, <laughs> what's your problem, you know? Like, you know, most of the universe doesn't have, you know, water in their own house. But imagine us if if we don't have that. It's, you know, so that hedonic treadmill, this stuff and these things, you know, when, it, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping.
0: Uh-huh. And,
1: uh, <laughs> but that doesn't create real happiness. And if my happiness is tied to how you look at me, I'm going to lose. if my happiness is contingent upon outside circumstances, um, we 're just never going to have any lasting sense and uh, And the very basic reason is we have very little control over that. We have very little control over that. What we do have control over is how we respond and how we show up in life. and that is really this this essence of the key.
0: I hear you and and part of me wants to argue and I, it, it, there's a yeah go ahead, yeah, so, you know that says, well, actually, it feels like I have a lot more control over what I buy on Amazon than my emotional state. I don't feel like I have any control over my emotional state, and you so when when the sh- sh- going gets tough, the tough go shopping. For me, shopping or lots of other activities that might appear to be hedonic feel like they're just trying to numb out feelings that I don't wanna feel so if I go all right am i if I go all mindful, am I gonna to have to feel all that shit
1: <laughs> yeah, you know uh the thing about emotions um are they're healthy <laughs> and uh. And that's one of the, the keys to mindfulness is the willingness to experience feelings. And, uh, and the real gift of that is you're going to find out the, the real magic to that is that feelings are temporary. And you're also going to find out something else that's quite unique that very few people realize is you are not your emotions. Your emotions will come and go. We say, I am angry. I'm going to say, no, you're not. Anger will come and go. You'll still be here. Happy, that will come and go. You'll still be here. Sad, that will come and go. You'll still be here. And uh, what we start to understand by really being present with our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions, the way life really functions, um, we'll notice that emotions will come and go and they don't need to dictate my actions. And that was one of the gifts in my early recovery was I have no control over my thoughts and feelings, but I do have control over my actions. And instead of putting a Band-Aid, which is, you know, the Band-Aid of shopping, the Band-Aid of jumping in the jacuzzi and the Band-Aid of whatever my thing is drinking more, the Band-Aid of, uh, you know, avoiding this, it never deals with my underlying turmoil and trouble. And I'm more and more subject to being provoked by having emotions toss me around that I can't deal with. And I don't find any real lasting happiness because I'm constantly trying to find a Band-Aid. And the Band-Aid's not going to last long.
0: Hmm. So I, I have actually, have a. I guess it's a personal question, so feel free not to uh-huh. answer it. And I can always you know, cut, cut it out in the, in the uh-huh. editing. Yeah, I'm pretty open. So a lot of people who say, you know, so that you, you you mentioned that you're in recovery. Um, I know yes. a lot of people who go to programs like that feel like they're they're always in recovery, and uh-huh. that, you know that they might say, "Well, I'm." Um, uh-huh. I guess they're they're taught to say, "I am an alcoholic." That that uh-huh. they never let go of that label, and I'm wondering with a with the path you've taken of mindfulness, would you would you ascribe to that? Do you still feel uh-huh. like You are in recovery, or has this shifted into something else?
1: Well, for me, it's a much broader range. You know what I'm in recovery from is an obsessive, compulsive, delusional mind. And uh, so I'm in recovery from a grasping level of being that, that is, you know, subject to being driven by their emotions and impulses and desires. I'm in recovery from that. You know, at one point, that used to be alcohol or drugs, and, you know, it's been 30 years without that. So I would not, you know, pick up uh, a drink and I wouldn't pick up a drug. And um, and there's a lot of sort of research to say that if you were to do that, uh, even 30 years later, you could find yourself right back, you know, with no power over it. Uh, in my life, I don't find it meaningful and I certainly don't want to test the theory. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, And uh, because the real piece anyway is with clarity. So it's the ability to be liberated from any addiction, from any afflictive emotion. And what we find is whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or shopping or sex or, uh, you know, there's there's such gambling, there's so many distractions and so many addictions that we have on very subtle levels, food and so forth. that, as in a human condition, this obsessive, compulsive, delusional mind and emotions that are are driving us around uh, keep us limited and uh, and so really, in recovery from that, thoughts, feelings, and emotions that are transient are not dictating how i 'm living my life and and here's where I want to interject this thing called free will. you know a lot of people say uh you know, the reason there's sort of a philosophical, you know, thing when you get into interface dialogue and, and they'll say, you know, if there's a loving God, you know, why do people suffer? And and a lot of times the answer is free will. We suffer because we have free will. And and I have this interesting ask you know, sort of reflection on it, and say, do you really have free will? And uh and I'm gonna say, you know, point blank, I feel that most of us don't have free will. And and I'll qualify that with if you want to have free will, you have to be present <laughs> to make a choice, right? So most of our day, we're not even present in the moments of our life. Most of our life, we're not present. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, it's, it's the idea that uh, here's my three test phrases, see if they've ever happened in your life. Uh, where are those car keys? Uh, you know, I had that piece of paper a minute ago.
0: Uh, you know, what were we talking about? Now, I, I only you know, talked to two out of those three in the last hour and a half, by the way. Okay, good. <laughs>
1: and so we sit there and we think, well, I forgot where I put the keys. Well, I'm going to tell you, you weren't there when you put them down. You weren't there when you put the piece of paper down. And, you know, worse yet, you know, I wasn't even listening when we were talking, and, uh, so if we really start to look at our life, we're going to see that most of our life, we're not there. We're, uh, we're on autopilot, you know, and, and then as life happens, we react and as life happens, we have emotions, you know, uh, the plane's not there on time. I have a ticket. I bought a ticket. How could that be that the plane's not there on time? And I get worked up and I'm reactive. Uh, and in the big picture, you know what? You want them to fix the plane, right? In the big picture, uh, you know, a lot of people have had planes that were late or canceled and they lived. And it really didn't impact the meaning of their life. But in those moments, we're reactive and we're emotional. And how much free will do we really have? Because we're being driven around by this mind and thoughts and emotions and we're not present to make a choice. So when I think about mindfulness, I really think of it as cultivating free will in your own life, to really respond to life in a way you're going to feel good about tomorrow and the next day, and that's healthy for you. And, uh, you know, we can all sit down. I I used to do this to my students. I'd tell them, sit down, make a list of five things you can do to improve your life. And it's not hard. Anybody can do it, and it won't even take long. But the next question is, can you do the five things? Hmm. How much free will do we really have? What is it that prevents me from doing the things that I know are healthy and well? I'd rather you know, go shopping on Amazon than do the things I know that would be healthier for me. And so mindfulness is really about the tools. If I understand that my lasting happiness is going to be much stronger when I show up in a way that I feel good about and deal with the issues at hand. And in that way, we really start to cultivate free will. And and real quickly within a week, you start seeing a a real substantial change in your life. Um, You're no master and habits are there and, you know, feelings and thoughts and all those things. But you'll notice real quickly that if I start living life in reality, um, things will get better pretty quickly. And if I start responding to life in a way I feel good about, the result is you feel better.
0: It, it, almost, it reminds me a little bit of, let's say, a business trying to make decisions on a daily basis but with no access to financials. So they don't know what we are, uh, what's making profit, they don't know what's selling, they don't know the margins, they don't know the return rate, they don't know the leads or conversion rate. And without that, they have no idea what direction they're trying to go. And so the only thing, you know, and I guess that's probably true of like 95% of employees is that they really aren't connected <laughs> to the big picture. So they just, you know, go to the water cooler and have donuts and have conversations and, and do things that make them feel accomplished or pass the time as opposed to the things that are really um, moving forward, the, the mission of the business. And I guess if the mission of our lives is to be, truly happy to be doing meaningful work in alignment with our values, then we need to pay attention to what are those things that would make our life better.
1: Right. And what are my values? And um, and that's a really great analogy. Uh, uh, it's instead of my life being uh, my happiness contingent on me being lucky a lot, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> all the time and things going my way, which is that business plan without any financials, uh, you know, it's much more empowering. And so here's where I uh, start with, with people is every morning I ask them to take an accurate assessment of your current situation. This is my reality check. And, and this is how you start to gauge that. Uh, So when you wake up in the morning, first thing thought, number one, Thought number one is to take a real look at your life and, and assess it. And, and you're going to find that um, you have an incredible life with an, amazing resources. You know, you have a house. Probably most of us have a house. It probably has electricity. It probably has the drinking water. Uh, most of us can read and write. We're literate. Most of us um, have an incredible amount of opportunity in cars and education. And most of the world's population doesn't have, right? The water in their own house that they can drink. You know, that's an incredible luxury. They don't have climate control. They can't read and write. They don't have access to education. Of these 7 billion plus people on this planet, we have this real incredible life of opportunity and leisure. Uh, There's a quote or a statistic. I haven't really checked it yet, but I, I like saying it. It might even be true. Um, is that just by having some money in a bank account and in your pocket, you're in the top 8% of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, you know, I mean, if we really pull this in uh, and think about this in our, in our life and and take a moment to think about the life that we do have, the things we do have, a lot of people call it a gratitude list. And um, you know, the relationships I have, the opportunities I have, I can read and write. And, um, and the friends that I have and the things that are so meaningful. And that list is huge. And if I really take a moment to think about that, that's amazing. First thought, second thought, as soon as you feel really good about your life, I'm going to tell you, you're going to die. Uh, you know, that's the other reality. We have this incredible opportunity that so few human beings have, but we're not going to have it forever. There's two facts about death. Death is certain, time of death uncertain. We have no idea that we'll be here tomorrow. We really think we will, but in truth, there's nothing to say we will. And and you can look around, you know, people have passed when they were 12 or 16 or 80 or 60 or 50. Uh, We know people who passed away suddenly. You see it in the papers, you know, that guy in Florida, you remember that guy in Florida, there was a, a sinkhole that developed under his bed and just sucked him like while he was sleeping and and, you know, this stuff happens. It happens all the time. My brother-in-law was just taking a walk with my sister in the park and he had a heart attack and died right there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the night before he's barbecuing for his daughter, my niece. And, you know, this happens all the time. But again, in our mind, it's not going to happen to us. We're not going to get cancer. We're not going to get leukemia. We're not going to die. I've got all these years. And so it's to remember, A, I have an incredible life filled with opportunity and leisure that very few humans have. Two, I'm not going to have it forever. And we we remember this not to be morbid, but to remember that this day will never come again. That we do know. This day that we're living right now will never come again. And this day is one day closer to our death. And it really brings the urgency of, wow, this day is never coming again. How many times in our life have we said, I can't wait for this day to end? (laughs) you know, that's the wrong attitude. I can wait. And, and then the third thought, and this becomes the real critical piece at the time of death, what's going to matter at the time of our death, what's really going to matter? Is it all this stuff we worry about? And what I have found in in all these years is that I don't care what race, culture, religion, spiritual belief you have, the answer is always the same. What's going to matter at the end of life is how you lived your life. And was it meaningful? Do you have regrets? Do your loved ones know they're loved? You know, and so with this type of mentality, we can enter our day, a day that will never come again, remembering what's important. And the fascinating thing is we don't ask ourselves this. We don't remember this. We're on autopilot. How much free will do we have when we don't even take a reflection that uh, what you call it, the financials of our corporation. We don't check and remember what is it that is our valuable resource? What are our values? And what is a meaningful life to me? And what is the life I want to live today that's going to matter? And uh, what's the stuff that's not? You know, what's mm-hmm. the stuff that's not? So the Native Americans have that great saying, today's a good day to die. And that means that they're at peace, that their loved ones know they're loved, their debts are paid, they're healthy and whole. And I always like to think of living each day to make it a good day to die, you know, that I'm showing up in a way that I feel good about. And if I were to go, it would be all right. So in that sense, it's that. Checking our financials, to use your analogy, looking at what's important, looking at what a, the life is that I want to live. And then going into the world mindfully, you know, we use meditation to train the mind uh, to you know, be aware. And, and then the value to process that says, as life arises, being here with wisdom, how can I respond that's in alignment with my values that's meaningful that I'm going to feel good about? And I start living in that way. I start empowering myself to be the person I want to be. Having my actions match my my belief system. You know, Gandhi says, happiness is when your thoughts, speech, and actions are in harmony.
0: So I'm uh, I'm already preparing in my mind the, the index card that I'm going to make with those three thoughts and keep it by my bedside. And I'm also feeling all this resistance. Like, I know myself. And I can actually remember one time I was lying in bed next to my wife and I was moping about something or other and I was kind of dragging her down into the mire and she said, why don't you take a minute and think of all the things you're grateful for? And and I just said, because I don't want to. <laughs> right. So, so, so what, what do I do with this you know, this big brain of mine that all it wants to do is subvert everything you've just said for the past hour.
1: Right. And and that is the path of mindfulness, because you're going to find that the only thing preventing us from doing the right thing is that big mind, that obsessive, compulsive, delusional mind that's grasping to things in ways that aren't realistic. And so the real answer is living in reality. And, and that that's where the piece that, that comes clear uh, if we start to, uh, you know, and that's where meditation is going to be. If you really want to train the mind, you're going to have to do a little bit of meditation uh, to to start being able to direct it where you would like to direct it, and that that's the big difference. So we, we use as a basis in our program shamatha practice. It's called calm abiding, or a lot of people call it concentration meditation. Uh, and what it does is um, it gives you the ability over time to direct your mind where you choose to direct it and not have your mind constantly telling you where to go. So if you want to, uh, to have free will in your life, you have to take control because you are not the one saying, I don't want to be happy and I don't want to do this. As a matter of fact, when those, that mind's quiet, When you're calm and when you're not depressed in that state and you're at peace, you're saying, yeah, I really want to be happy. And I want to live like this. What's taking you away from it is that busy mind that's used to running our life. And that mind is not you. Those thoughts are impermanent and temporary. That feeling that you had in that bed came and went. The resistance came and went. And, one of the big problems we have in life is we really identify with it and, and we think, I am not good at this. Like, for example, uh, you know, we tell ourselves, I, I used to think I'm not good at language and I have speech impediment. I'm not good at this. And and we hold these things as though they don't change. When, in fact, they do change. You know, I go to a refugee settlement in India and I'm surrounded by people who only speak Tibetan. It's fascinating how quickly they became good at language, Right. <laughs> Because I needed to. And uh, so I learned a, you know, conversational Tibetan. And, uh, but, you know, we hold these truths, like I'm allergic to, you know, strawberries. Uh, well, if you always believe that, you'll always be allergic. But, you know, what studies have shown is allergies come and go and, and you can try a strawberry years later. You might not be. I am like this. And what happens is... And this is sort of the neuroscience that's come in these days, is to show that the plasticity of the brain allows for change. And uh, and so what you know we they kind of say neurons that fire together wire together. And what that means is uh, what I think about the most, or the habits and tendencies I have, I can create new ones, and it'll actually change within my brain structure. What we have right now is a well worn groove, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like this, you know, it's like that marble in a well worn groove. You know, this is who I am. That's why when people go on the retreat or they read the good book or they get inspired and they have New Year's resolutions, they're gonna be different. They take the marble out of the groove. And then you know what happens? Boom, I'm right back in. And uh and so the the practice of mindfulness is the analogy I use is I push the marble out every day. So every day I bring these thoughts up and every day I do a little meditation. Every day I work at being a little better. And some days I'll fail miserably. Some days I won't even do my practice. But each day I do my best to push the marble out and the marble falls back. But if I push it out every day, it starts to stay out longer. and starts to stay out longer. And eventually it'll start wearing a new groove, And this is where the shift takes place. The new groove is this groove that's of your attention and intention, the life you want to live, that you're choosing with free will, without the mind dragging you around. And that only happens over time. That's why when we talked about that spontaneous liberation of all suffering versus a much more gradual path where we just get a little bit better, but it's constant improvement over time, Uh, then we establish more free will in our life. We find less stress. Uh, and and you're going to find that the only place for stress and worry and s- mental suffering really comes from one simple thing. I want things to be different than they are, which is it's pretty insane almost, really. It's quite literally out of our mind. Um because things are this way. I can agonize all I want, but, but if I can accept that things are this way, now I'm empowered to change them. I'm empowered to step up and do my part. Uh, so yeah, it's a real interesting piece, but, uh, but we can change. So those habits we have and the way I identify with how I am and how I'm stuck in that, uh, all the science has shown that that's, we all change. As a matter of fact, we all do change
0: and everybody changes. It's one of the
1: the realities of the world we live
0: in in permanence and change. Mm. So it sounds it sounds like you're saying that, you know, momentary good intentions are are about just about as useful as someone who who goes and does 10 push-ups and then waits for the muscles to grow and the fat to burn off that we need we need a workout practice. Could could you talk right. a little bit you have a um, a program coming up, right? The mindful life program. Could you talk a little bit about that so people who are listening can learn more about it and decide if maybe it would be something that would be useful for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, with the Mind's Life program, it's uh, it uh, is something that has transpired. You know, as we've talked about, I've had this great thirty years of living uh, uh, at different levels of life, and I've also had some you know, really wonderful benefit of, of some really great teachers within ancient traditions and so forth, and, uh, and the opportunity in my own life to make change and overcome adversity. And, and the epiphany last year was, uh, you know, the Dalai Lama had said, uh, and he's been saying, you know, what is it that we can share with people that's not Buddhist? It's not Buddhist. What is it that we can share as a universal human beings that can help people improve their life? And, uh, you know, he says, first, I'm a human. Second, I'm Tibetan. Third, I'm a Buddhist. But first, for human, what is it? And so uh, he wanted us to develop, he threw not me in particular, but the world, to develop tools that can help people relieve suffering. And so and it, within my own training, I thought about the lives that I've had and the experiences. I mean, I've been, I'm a grandparent. You know, I'm, I've been a single parent, I've been an auto mechanic, I've, you know, these things. And, uh, and I thought, Let's draw from that whole experience and put together a program that's practical, accessible, and universal, that you can come in in 16 hours, have some tools to start living a life with free will. And that's what the Mindful Life program has really been built upon. It's not some big hierarchical thing. It's just practical. If you're Earl at the garage, if you're a single mom raising a couple of kids, if you're a PhD, it's all still going to work and uh, And so, with this program, we train people in four basic key elements of life. and uh, And that's kind of, Our mainstay, a lot of mindfulness is just more about present moment awareness, non-judgmentally, whereas we're really looking at, I do want good discerning wisdom. So one step is we train people uh, some basic meditation techniques to cultivate concentration so they can direct their mind where they would like. The second part is we help them develop wisdom to have more discernment and clarity about the world they live in. And be aware of how they prejudge situations like the person with the bumper sticker or, you know, the kind of person I am or how I have biases and how my emotions really affect how I'm dealing with people. So there's that aspect. So we really help and have some tools to help people see the world a little more clearly. The third piece is to have them take a look at what their values are. And this is the critical piece. You, you mentioned those financials, right? Well, if I don't know what my values are and if my genuine well-being is by living in alignment with my values, when's the last time I looked? <laughs> you know, when's the last time I really looked at what is important and really reflected on what are my values and, and am I living according to them and, and what are important? So, and you'd be amazed how many times when people do this exercise, they realize that some of their values have shifted. And others are more prominent now in their life and others are less. And um, so we really want to cultivate the ability to make choices in alignment with your personal values, your values. Again, we emphasize whatever your spiritual belief is, whatever your uh, value system is. This is to support you in the life you want to have. You know, it, we don't have any, um, it's not Buddhist, it's nothing from our side in that sense. We just want to provide tools to help people live their life the way they, uh, they would like to. If there was no emotions and they were clear right in their list, how do you want to live your life and what are your values? And then the fourth piece that we find is really uh, critical to, to living a meaningful life is uh, we work on uh, cultivating what we call an open heart. Uh, we find that uh, in life, to really be healthy and balanced in life, we, we want to have good relationships with people and we want to be able to interact in this social world that we have. So we really work with, uh, we call them the, the four immeasurables of cultivating equanimity, you know, and, and having a nice balanced view towards all all people that we come in contact with. It's discerning and clear. Uh, loving kindness, compassion, and empathetic joy. So that's a component that uh, that we uh, infuse our program with so that if, uh, if I really find that I want to live a life that uh, is meaningful, often you're going to find that I'd like to have some love in it, I'd like to have some joy. <laughs> Certainly compassion, compassion, the definition is actually to remove suffering. You know, if I have compassion, I don't want you to suffer if I have compassion for myself, I don't want to suffer. So compassion becomes a really powerful tool to remove suffering in ourselves and others. Mm. So this is really the four key components of MLP is concentration, uh, wisdom, ethics, values, and uh, an open heart. And so we have a, I think, pretty practical little program uh, that we offer. We're offering an online course coming up on the 18th, which is a a short version of it, and then we offer a 16-hour course uh, in different parts of the country where uh, sometimes travel. So we, I have a partner in Australia, so there's courses
0: in Australia, Canada,
1: and the United States.
0: So the, the, the online course is a kind of a, an introduction and a taste for people... Uh... Yeah, the online course will actually contain
1: all of those four components. Um, so I just have half the time. So the piece that we lose that you would normally get if you were there in person is a more into, uh, integrative uh, small group discussion period. So you're still going to get the full force of information and, uh, and resources, but you won't have the, the extra time to break into groups of three and, and have those small discussions.
0: But but you are going to give people uh, practices and tools so it doesn't just stay in the mind, right? It becomes absolutely yeah. Help people make it a practice so it gets implemented.
1: Yeah, right. Over a period of four weeks, they'll have all the same tools by the end, and uh, and have that uh, well uh, incorporated. They'll actually have some sense of practice over the four weeks. So by the time we get to the end, you know they really should be really able to, to incorporate this in their daily life.
0: Are, 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 is the online course taught live or their recordings? No, it's, it's live. So
1: they're smaller groups and, uh, you know, we limit it to 20 so I can respond to people. So it's an online course where, uh, in a group conference setting, and, uh, I can see you, you can see me and we can respond
0: directly. Gotcha. And for people who want to find out more, where should they go?
1: They should go to the MindfulLifeProgram.org.
0: Okay, that's uh, MindfulLifeProgram.org, right? No, no the?
1: Yes. No the, just MindfulLifeProgram.org.
0: Excellent. Um, any, anything uh, you wish I'd asked that I haven't? Well, I, I think we covered a pretty good gamut.
1: We covered free will, values, choices, uh, the crazy delusional world we live in. I guess, that, that, I, I guess that was
0: a trick question, right? If I, what, yeah. do you wish, what do you wish hadn't, had happened the day? <laughs> uh, I, tra- I tried no, my we, best.
1: We, yeah, we would rephrase that with, was there anything else beneficial we could add? Uh, uh, that would be a mindful way of putting it. Uh, but no, I think you really great. It's been wonderful chatting with you about this,
0: and uh, uh, I've I've loved it. And the uh, it's now um, ten minutes to five p.m. Eastern time. It's six thirty. My uh, ultimate frisbee team, of which I'm a co-captain, has its first playoff game, and i I'm, awesome. I'm going to try to cultivate mindfulness and not get upset because occasionally in ultimate frisbee. Uh-huh we lose points and we make mistakes and we even lose games. And th- yes, sometimes by looking at me, you would think that that wasn't the case, that I'm utterly shocked and dismayed when these things happen. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can bring a little hit of, of John Bruna onto the field with me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, everything we talked about can be summed up in what I learned from my little league coach. It doesn't matter whether we win or lose. It's how we play the
0: game. Awesome. I
1: I really think that that's true in life.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Well, John Bruna of MindfulLifeProgram.org. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join me on the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Howard. It's been a joy. It's an honor to be on your program. And I'm really looking forward to getting to know you more as well as we move on in this
0: life. Right on. I'm right there with you. Thanks, John. All right. You bet. You be well. You too. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Bruna. A couple hours after I finished recording it, I went off to play in my Ultimate Frisbee playoffs, and we lost, and I was much better about it. So some of that rubbed off, and I'm hoping it's continuing to rub off. I'm repeating to myself the, uh, the line that causes all suffering. I want things to be different than they are. And when I catch myself thinking that, and I say that sentence, it really helps ground me because it's such a ridiculous thing to say. Um, I'm also planning on making a little note card and putting it by my bedside and including those three morning thoughts that John talked about. The uh, accurate assessment of my current situation, which may start out with some whiny complaints and uh, invectives and anger, but certainly has to include all the things I'm grateful for house, family, land, garden, health. Uh, number two, I'm going to die someday. Uh, take a minute to think about that. And then number three, at the time of my death, what's going to matter? And so I invite you to uh, try that as well. Make that index card and keep it by your bedside and spend, I don't know, whether I'm going to spend 30 seconds or three minutes or 10 minutes on it tomorrow. I'll, uh, I'll see what feels right. But if you try it, please leave some uh, comment in the comments box on the website or on the Facebook page, facebook.com plantyourself and let me know. And if anyone signs up for the Mindful Life online program that starts on November 18th, let me know about that as well. Take care. Have a great day, my friends.